1: This is Squawk Pod, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, here comes the COVID vaccine, Do we have enough? The US government has
2: currently purchased 300 million doses from Moderna and from Pfizer, the two vaccines
1: that have proven to work. And the massive project of getting shots to millions of Americans. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA chief.
3: What you're gonna see is a tremendous amount of heterogeneity, different states doing different things. Some will prioritize elderly, some will prioritize essential workers. I think most states will do a hybrid of both.
1: Plus a massive Russian cyber attack that we didn't see coming. Former White House Chief Information Officer Teresa Payton.
4: There's only two types of organizations, and it's those that have been hacked and those that don't know it yet.
1: Those stories today on the podcast and the COVID-19 pounds. Even when we're not talking about it, we're talking about it.
5: Can you go from overweight to less overweight? No, that's not one of the choices for these analysts.
1: It's Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. Sit back, grab a snack. It's a sausage and egg McMuffin.
6: Oh my gosh.
1: Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning,
6: everybody. Happy hump day. Welcome to Squawk Box. This is CNBC.
7: We might be getting a snow day soon uh, here on the East Coast. Uh, I know Wow. Some- Kids are thinking about that, but does it become a virtual? A vir, do we have to go to virtual school on a no snow day? Thing. That's the conversation in my nope. house. No We're getting, no such getting a snow day. we getting a real snow day. There's no such thing as a snow day. Becky Quick, Joe got, Kernan. The, every day is a um, snow
5: day. Isn't it? For my kids. Every day is Well,
7: not for, the kids. for the kids, though, do they do they get to go out sledding, or do they have to no. sit in front of an iPad doing they school? Sledding. That's go the, sledding. That's the question. Um Call their teachers, Bex. You, you, you can, uh, I don't, I don't, we are not sure no, that that's the No, we already are. Our school district
6: is, it. is doing a real snow day. We're on a real snow day, so we're okay. getting so the floods right Your we're kids are
5: back, go. right? If it's already virtual, it's hard to, uh, you know, what do they just cancel? No, our kids the are back, right. yeah. yeah. Separately,
7: uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell offering his congratulations to President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris from the Senate floor.
5: As of this morning, our country has officially a president-elect and a vice president-elect. Many millions of us had hoped the presidential election would yield a different result. But our system of government has processes to determine who will be sworn in on January the 20th.
7: And it was, of course, the first time that McConnell acknowledged Joe Biden as president-elect majority leader, later warned Republicans in his conference not to object to the electoral college outcomes when Congress affirms Biden's victory on January 6th. This, according to NBC News, uh, worth noting, uh, Kevin McCarthy, for example, and still many, many others have not acknowledged um, President-elect Biden's victory.
5: Well, McConnell is just making the point that the Electoral College voted. Uh, All my wacky, a lot of my wacky people on Twitter. I didn't know what they did, but they all call themselves president-elect now. It's like, why is this guy, president-elect this guy, president-elect that guy? And I think they're like joking or making the point that until this happens, you're really not. And everyone was already doing it. It's all semantics. But (laughs) I mean, I like I've got like 50 president-elects that that are tweeting all the time. Uh, Twitter, you find anything. Uh, It's a lot of fun. It's nutty. Yeah. Right. I, 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 <laughs> a lot of
6: fun. <laughs>
5: right. President elect is a hell of a title if you can get it. Uh, I, it I was thinking about it asking is, you guys to call me it, that one. This a while. It
6: wouldn't be the first time that we've called people president elect before the election. College well, I've done college it. I, I did voting. it. I'm I mean, sure it's, four it's, years ago. We it's did shorthand. it shorthand. President Trump.
5: Right. It's shorthand for, it for once the election's like over. And know this a, is coming. It's. Right. You could say president-elect, you could say president, elect, you could yeah. say president new president, or president-to-be, you could use any of those the things. presumed
6: president-elect, you can use lots of right. different things. But yes, exactly. I guess officially it's, it's, it's when the Electoral College votes, but when you see that That's it's going happens, to be an inevitability, yeah. I guess people, right. Like people is it, it
5: S-Day, stimulus-Day? No, elector- maybe maybe I, we had V-Day. It was it V-D, V-Day or D-Day? Not V-D-Day. It was both.
6: Um, it, there was a general who was calling it D-Day, which I think is actually more appropriate. Right. V-Day okay, V-Day, great for the vaccine, but D-Day is, I think, more significant because that signifies the day when you really take a significant change in in a military operation where you're fighting back. And that's what happened, you know? You start handing these vaccines out, and that's our first time that we're really fighting back against
5: COVID. See, now the EU, they're mad at that guy. Rightly so, probably. It's like, let's go here, you know? They're people getting jabbed all over the place, and they're over there going, "Geez, I don't know, uh... (sighs) <sighs> uh, anyway, that that probably is. And days matter. Yeah, it's not like the EU doesn't have cases. I mean, let's get going. And, and the point's been made. What, what a week. What what difference a week uh, a week can make. Anyway, here's a big call this morning, and uh, I can tell you about this. How difficult it is uh, to go. From an overweight all the way to an underweight. It's it's almost impossible. I mean, it's even impossible to get to neutral weight. Uh, J.P. Morgan uh, out with a big call on airlines. It downgraded United, JetBlue, and Spirit Airlines all the way from overweight to underweight. Don't you wish we could do that uh, with with diets? Doesn't happen, though. Anyway, that's a two-notch downgrade. The analyst uh, said valuation was the catalyst. Uh, He said the move... (laughs) Can you go from overweight to less overweight? That's uh, that's not a uh, no, that's 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 not one of the uh, that's not one of the choices for these analysts. Anyway, the move began as a simple housekeeping response uh, to disappointing but unsurprising fourth quarter demand trends. Uh, it became a recommendation uh, for selective profit taking See what Max brought me today. Guy, this what? is helping. It's a sausage and egg McMuffin.
6: Sausage? Oh, my I, gosh. I no, that's not going to get you so any
5: underweight status overnight. I'm a, you know what? I'm a, you know how you do pies, cut them into like an eighth? I'm allowed. I'm going to have an eighth because I it's 488 calories. An eighth
6: followed by another eighth, followed by another eighth, followed
5: by Every another 10 eighth. Minutes, I want to see that thing at the end of the, by, the show. I'm going to work it off. <laughs> I'm going to run around the set here. Uh, anyway, J.P. Morgan had already weighted American Airlines and Southwest. At, uh, at underweight. Uh, there's a little more here. The analyst said Delta and Alaska Air remain overweight uh, with an implied potential upside of around 30%. So, Andrew, um, you know, Mr. Hollow Leg, Mr. Nine Donuts, it, it, do you have a preference uh, between a sausage? I had a choice. There were two here with arrows pointing. Which do you want? The Egg McMuffin is... Uh, donuts. My choice is Donuts. You're a donut guy. But do you have a preference between a sausage, sausage. and egg McMuffin or, or a regular egg McMuffin? I like the sausage and egg McMuffin. Sausage, I'd rather have McMuffin. an eighth of that than yeah. a half of the, of the other one. Oh.
6: Just pretend yeah, you have a protein. Yeah, I think I'd do
5: that. Sausage, so
7: egg, McMuffin, better. But, I, yeah, there's, enough, there's more fat in it, which would, would be more
5: filling. Yep. Yep. So, so you're a little, I, I, yeah. But with you, it's all move. about just health. I mean, just, uh, I mean, it's... You could do whatever you want well, i'm a yo-yo
7: I go either from being totally overly healthy or just it's just
5: i keep i weight wise you've got no uh i mean do you have a you don't have a six pack do you I no mean, if I we, go
7: up and i uh, look i we we talked about this when 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 covid first started everybody you know we talked about the college uh the college fifteen people were i think we all yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying we all but you know we, and then You pointed at me, but I would say i've <laughs> I was not pointing at you, and then I tried, I, at, mean, I, I tried to be. I tried to be looking good. at you, and you pointed <laughs> at me. You went like that. No, no, no. And then the. Then in the past couple months, I've been trying to get back, back to, back, back to neutral, oh, oh. as as
5: J.P. Morgan would say. All right. Um, well done. There's serious things happening, and then we we need to move on here.
1: Coming up on Squawk Pod, the devil is in the details for COVID vaccines and therapeutics. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb says only about a quarter of antibody drugs shipped to the U.S. are being used.
3: What it means is that when the states are getting these drugs, they don't have the means to distribute them. They haven't set up the systems.
1: We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets?
6: Joe, show me the sausage, sausage uh, McMuffin. Where is it? It's
5: still here. It's still here, and I can fake it. I can I can stuff a sock in here or or or, or something. That sounds bad. <laughs> that sounds really bad, doesn't it?
1: This is Squawk Pod from CNBC, and here's Joe Kernan from the Nasdaq Market Site in Times Square, where things in New York are changing.
5: This kills me, Sorkin. We talked about it already, but Frank, Can't the, see it. Frank and Jackie and oh. uh, yeah. Maryland oh, and 21. all those little, uh, you yep. know, you can. I don't know about those things. Those, They got to take those things down anyway, probably. Uh, but um, 21, uh, is it really 90 years? And then you remember the last time there were, there were no one out here on um, New Year's Eve, 1907. Not going to be a soul here as the ball comes down oh, wow. this year. Last time was nine, oh, wow. 19. So many things like that that you.
6: Why in 1907?
5: What happened then? Um, I don't know. I, I know it's between 06 and 08, but um, I didn't even look. I just I just saw that we, we should look <laughs> it up. I was looking like up... The pandi-
6: it wasn't like the 1919 pandemic or.
5: No, I was looking up calories. I wasn't looking up uh 19, 19, <laughs> still 19... obsessing. No, <laughs> I did that earlier. I biscuit? did that earlier. It's a shocker. Are you <laughs> 2000 a day? That's it. I wish there was a way we could. Uh, I don't know. I just wish there was. A... Well, there is a way, but I'm not ready to try
7: that. Okay. Meantime, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar offering an updated timeline on when most Americans will be able to get the coronavirus vaccine. Meg Drell joins us with more on that. Good morning, Meg.
2: Good morning, Andrew. Well, the end of February, the end of March, that is what Secretary Alex Azar told Shepard Smith last night on CNBC about when the general population will start to get access to the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, that's dependent on a number of things going right. First, can we vaccinate hundreds of millions of Americans in this record time? That's a key question. And that is happening now, of course, with the Pfizer vaccine. The second, of course, is supply. Uh, The U.S. government has currently purchase 300 million doses from Moderna and from Pfizer, the two vaccines that have proven to work, 200 million from Moderna, 100 million from Pfizer, uh, and 200 million of those, 100 each, from Moderna and Pfizer get delivered by the end of the first quarter. The second 100 million from Moderna get delivered in the second quarter by June. Uh, And the government is working on striking a deal with Pfizer for another 100 million doses. Uh, But there is some tension happening that has become apparent this week, really through our interview on Monday with Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla, uh, and then Shep's interview with Secretary Azar last night, where he asked, Could they use and why haven't they used the Defense Production Act to help Pfizer get access to raw materials uh, to increase the supply and speed up delivery of those 100 million doses? Take a listen to both of uh, those gentlemen this week.
5: While we guaranteed
7: purchase of $2 billion of vaccine, and that is critical for their ability to develop that vaccine and put the capital investment in, they are more secretive with us about their manufacturing capacities, their needs. So we can't know they have a raw material problem until they tell us they have a raw material problem.
0: We are asking them uh, right now a few things. They haven't done it yet. But we are asking them and I hope that they will do it very soon because uh, particularly in some components, we are running at uh, critical supply uh, limitations. But I think they will do it.
2: So, Albert Bourla from Pfizer telling us that their raw materials are running at critical supply. Presumably, they've also told the uh, HHS guys. uh, Pfizer has said it can deliver 100 million doses in the third quarter in the U.S. But the U.S. wants them in the second quarter. And so the pressure is on to be able to speed up those doses uh, and or guys count on other vaccines working from J&J and AstraZeneca. And we should hear about that in January, guys.
7: Well, that's what I was going to ask you real quick, Meg. You know, we talk obviously about the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, given the the, the great results that we've seen thus far. J&J, you think we're going to hear about in January if the results are positive in January? How quick does that then come on the heels and, you know, how quickly does that get rolled out on the other end? Because I know they're, they're have, they have a huge manufacturing uh, operation going.
2: They do, and their shot is the only vaccine uh, that could be one dose. I'm so excited to get to see those data. Monsef Slaoui from Operation Warp Speed has said we can expect them in early January because they've enrolled about 42,000 people in their trial. Uh, They were going to enroll 60,000, but because the infection rates are so high, they don't need as many people to be able to show efficacy on this vaccine. So they're going to stop the enrollment at the end of this week, Mansaf Slawi told us on Monday. uh, And he expects that they should have essentially enough uh, cases of COVID-19 in the trial to be able to tell the difference between placebo and vaccine early January uh, if it works and it shows safety, he expects it could get on the market in February.
6: Wow. Hey, Meg, can we go back to this tension between Pfizer and, and the U.S. government on trying to work this out? Because I've been trying to figure out w- what they were quibbling back and forth about, what they were arguing about. You know, price would be one question, but it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like Pfizer needs some help getting some of these key components. And if, if the U.S. isn't going to take the measures to help them get that, then the U.S. is not going to get moved up in the line. Is that your understanding of it?
2: Yeah. So, you know, what we had been hearing over the last week and Dr. Gottlieb told you guys was that Pfizer had its second quarter allotment of these doses that it would have manufactured by the middle of the year, came to the U.S. government and said, do you want these? You have an option on them. Uh, According to Dr. Gottlieb, the U.S. government said no. Uh, And so those doses were sold elsewhere. And so the third quarter allotment is available. But the U.S. wants it sooner. Um, And so in order to try to speed that up, uh, they would need access to raw material supply. And the Defense Production Act could compel suppliers to put Pfizer at the front of the line for those supplies. Uh, And so that is the question. Can that be done? Would that help? Um, You know, there's also been talk, Becky, of the U.S. government taking those doses um, that have been allocated to other countries. But that would be a big move.
6: Yeah, that, that would be something to see. I, I, I guess my biggest question, though, is are those components, I, what's the big deal? Why wouldn't we give them those components? Or are those components the same ones that J&J and that Moderna would need for their vaccines, too? So it's it's picking and choosing winners and who gets to to come out on top. Is that the, the answer?
2: It could be. Um, you know, we don't know exactly what the raw materials are that are in short supply. This is very, very secretive, to, to quote uh, Alex Azar. But secretive for the industry in general, I think they just don't want to give these kinds of in specific information. But, you know, if it's lipids, that's something that Moderna uses and something Pfizer uses. How much overlap is there among suppliers? Uh, those are the questions.
7: Uh, Meg Terrell, as always, thank you.
5: Pfizer's vaccine is making its way across the country where many frontline healthcare care workers and nursing home residents uh, are getting first access. Uh, now uh, comes a debate for who is next. Some say the elderly, others say essential workers. Join us now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's a former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. He also sits on the boards of Illumina and Pfizer, and we're in a, it feels different. We're in a different phase of this whole process, it, it feels like, uh, doctor. We want Pfizer uh, to, to ramp things up. Moderna's this week, that, that should uh, add to the supply of things. Um, J&J, what, what can you tell us at this point, what, what you're expecting in terms of timeline and efficacy and the ability to manufacture large amounts? We're talking next month sometime? Well, we, we kind of have a sense of what the supply is going to be from Moderna and Pfizer. Um,
3: what we don't know is are there going to be other new entrants and will J&J get into the market? Um, you, would ex- you would hope that they will. I think they would be the most likely right now. Snofi's delayed. We know AstraZeneca's delayed. Maybe perhaps Novavax. But J&J is an experienced manufacturer with a platform that's been a proven platform. So the hope is that sometime by uh, maybe late spring, late late, uh, winter, early spring, you could see J&J moving towards the market and they're gonna have the capacity to supply the market. The bigger issue here, I think though, is the reporting from Meg Terrell yesterday where she reported that only about five to 20% of the antibody drugs that have been shipped to the states have actually been used. And I alluded to this on your show um, earlier in the week that those drugs were probably not being used based on what I was hearing. What it means is that when the states are getting these drugs, they're, they don't have the means to distribute them. They haven't set up the system. So we've made a lot of um, discussion this week about the challenges of getting uh, products from point A to point B with the cold chain. And I've said I think that that's pretty solved for with our good logistics in this country. And it's going to be a last mile problem getting these vaccines distributed. The experience with the antibody drugs is not a good harbinger, and just bear in mind that the number needed to treat in terms of keeping one patient out of the hospital with those antibody drugs is 10. Lilly's going to distribute 900,000 doses of those drugs before the end of the year. That means if all those drugs got distributed, we could avoid 90,000 hospitalizations emergency room visits. That would be substantial, and we're not using those drugs. and so. It's a harbinger for the vaccines as well. As we get into the next tranche of people to be vaccinated, which is going to be in the community, um, it might be challenging for the states to distribute those
5: vaccines if they can't distribute the antibody drugs. Seems like it's, a, it's an opportunity, though, too, doctor, because it, we, we know that it's going to take a while for the vaccines to, to really make a dent in this. And in the meantime... I mean, policymakers ought to get that, those antibody drugs out. I mean, there, there's a way of focusing on a problem, isn't there? I know it's government, unfortunately, but it, there's a way of doing it, isn't there?
3: There is, and, and we've been talking about this for a long time, trying to get in place the infusion centers that you're going to need. It's not an easy task. You need special infusion sites. You can't bring COVID patients into normal infusion centers. Some states like Maryland have set up special sites and have done a really good job. Other states really didn't plan for this. I think the states are resource constrained on their own. Um, and there's probably more the federal government can do to be backstopping the states. The no approach sector, of Operation Warp Speed.
5: No f- private sector the, home the, infusion stuff? None of that? Can't, can't you co-opt that at this point? Exactly. I mean, that's,
3: that's and that's what I've written about and talked about on your show. I've written about this in the Wall Street Journal a couple of times, using home infusion. Again, you're going to need to pay someone to do that. But there are centers like uh, the big chain pharmacies that can go into homes and deliver this. And so I think that that's one infusion. My point is simply that I think um, you know, Operation right. Warp Speed really needs to plan for this, that last mile. That's going right. to be the challenge. We need to get these drugs into the arms of patients.
5: Right. Your, your point is that we had problems with the antibodies the last mile, and we ought to be able to see that, not yet, but when we get there with the vaccine, it could be the same sort of exactly. bottleneck, and we should, uh, we should prepare for it, and prepare for it now. So uh, we, we began the, the intro trying to figure out who should get this. That's, that's front and center. As well, um, right? Will we be surprised? How I, I guess you don't think we'll be surprised at how quickly it, it, it will come down to to people that you don't think of as essential. It's going to be a while for just the average person walking around to get one.
3: It depends on if there is another entrant in the market. It gets back to the question you asked about Dr. Johnson J&G. and Johnson. I think though what. What you're likely to see as we get into what we call 1B, the next tranche of patients who are going to be eligible for the vaccine, this is going to be January. December, it's going to be healthcare workers and nursing homes. But once we get into January, states are going to make decisions about that next tranche. I think what you're going to see is a tremendous amount of heterogeneity, different states doing different things. Some will prioritize elderly, some will prioritize essential workers. I think most states will do a hybrid of both. But then trying to um, determine eligibility, trying to go out in the community to actually deliver the vaccines, how they do that, you're going to see a tremendous amount of heterogeneity. And depending on what state you're in, um, it's going to determine whether or not the vaccine's accessible to you. And I think you're going to see a really some stark differences in, it, in, in accessibility across the states. And again, the antibody drugs is a harbinger of that. Um, if we are leaving this fully up to 50 states, we can expect to see a lot of differences between how well this is run and who gets access to it and who doesn't. And that's going to be unfortunate, because in an ideal world, you want to see more uniformity. Um, you also want to be able to verify eligibility. You don't want to see some
5: people being have-and-have-notch depending on where they live. Right. Okay. I, I know, Becky, wants to it, but the, the J&J is an adenovirus, and the, and you figure it should be exactly. just as good. You figure it should be 90% plus? Would, would you assume that they know what they're they, they, It's hard to, to estimate, but uh, you figure it should be... Uh, Effective?
3: We always felt that the adenoviral vector platforms would be effective because they'd okay. elicit a fuller complement of an immune response. The AZ's vaccine looked to be pretty robust, and so I would expect J&J
5: to figure this out. They're a good company. We've got to go, I guess, Dr. Uh, got a viewer accusing me of not asking a question before the interview's over, so I'm really going to get him here. So uh, the uh, <laughs> is, it, is, it, <laughs> is the antibody drug really expensive? Is, it, is, that, is that part of the problem? Is it ten grand? I mean... Is that why we're not seeing more of it used? It's, a, it's being paid for by the government. It's available. It's expensive it to deliver, and
3: it's complicated to deliver, but, um, but that money's being provided for us. So that's, okay. I don't think that's the
5: reason why the states are struggling. All right. Well, there you have it. I did ask it. <laughs> Dr. Gottlieb. Uh, thank you. A little disappointed, Andrew, that, that you missed an opportunity to, to, to uh, you know, build up the New York Times, but it was organized in 1907 by the owner of the New York Times, the ball dropping. There's an update on this. I don't know if you saw Adolf Ox. They used to have fireworks or something, and instead they moved it to where the headquarters of the New York Times to drop the ball here. And then did you know that? Why did, did, did you just, were you just being humble that it was the New York Times and, and the owner of the, I, humble's I, not uh, you know humility. Joe, I,
7: I am humbl- I'm humbled speaking to you every day because I learned something new. Well, um, but yes, only the only two times, times as we it discussed was wartime Square, named
5: after the New York Times, right? Squawk Square now, but uh, there were two times that the ball did not drop. Now it was 40, 1942 and 43 in an observance of wartime blackouts. So 1907 was sense. the first year. Yeah. Now there won't be anyone out there this year. First time since I guess 42 and 43 when the ball did not drop. But that first time was in 1907. I, I, that first time it was freezing Another. out there. I remember I was thinking, whoa, God, I wish I had. Uh, anyway, coming up, uh, much more on what's moving. <laughs> remember.
1: Next on Squawk Pod, a massive cyber attack believed to have been backed by Russia infiltrated the computer systems of U.S. federal agencies. Yikes. Former White House Chief Information Officer Teresa Payton.
4: If I put it on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm approaching a 9 right now. Uh, and a lot of that's based on what we still don't know.
1: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery,
6: Let's get you an update right now on that massive cyber attack that's believed to have been backed by Russia. The victims include multiple government agencies and U.S. companies that were infiltrated through software updates from SolarWinds. A government spokesman said last night that National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien cut short a multi-country European trip to return to the United States to address the cyber espionage campaign. For more on this, let's welcome Teresa Payton. She's former White House Chief Information Officer in the George W. Bush administration. She's now the CEO of cybersecurity firm Fortalis Solutions. And um, thank you for being here. It's really good to see you today, Teresa. Uh, what should we read in to the, this trip being cut short? Is that a significant thing? Is this for appearances? Or do you think that this is really a very significant a, a, attack and that more needs to be uh, more attention needs to be paid?
4: Uh, You're spot on. Uh, This is a significant uh, development in this. It is serious. I mean, based on what we know and what we don't know, you know, if I put it on a scale of one to 10, I'm approaching a nine right now. Uh, And a lot of that's based on what we still don't know. But the fact that many organizations have been impacted, departments and agencies, the U.S. military have been impacted potentially because of this compromise. You can't trust electronic communications right now on the unclassified side. So it's no surprise to me he came back stateside, possibly to go into in-person briefings.
6: When you say you put this on a 9, what, what does that mean? What, what, what's a 10? Because, I mean, if you start thinking through the, the different gradations of what a 10 would be, that's kind of like a meltdown, right? So what, what does 9 mean potentially?
4: Well, nine for me right now is based on what I have seen from what Microsoft has reported, FireEye, FBI through the InfraGuard program, uh, the different bulletins that have come out that have been so helpful, uh, telling companies uh, and government organizations the steps they need to take immediately Essentially, the design gives the opportunity for cyber operatives to have what we refer to in the industry as God access or the God door. The reason why I don't have it as a 10 is the investigation is still ongoing. So maybe we got lucky. Maybe these cyber operatives had set up that God access or that God door, but maybe they didn't get away with infiltrating the systems in such a way that they've changed data they've changed logistics, that they've got a permanent hold on the systems. What I do know is there are many talented men and women working behind the scenes right now to figure out that access, if it was potentially used, what's potentially compromised. So I'm at a nine, but I may deescalate that feeling as the investigation unfolds and we hear more.
6: I mean, it's crazy that this has been taking place over the last nine months and nobody figured it out until now. Um, the idea that we still don't know exactly what happened, what, what kind of confidence can any government agency or any company that's been hacked at this point, what kind of confidence can they have that they're not losing secrets or losing internal documents on a regular basis, even at this moment?
4: Uh, you bring up a great point, And I remember when um, Mr. Mueller, the former FBI director, said many years ago, there's only two types of organizations and it's those that have been hacked and those that don't know it yet. And so that's why right now every organization around the globe, this is not an American problem. This was an attack on us all, um, leveraging these vulnerabilities, inserting this malicious software. Uh, And so basically we have this um, extreme global issue that needs to be reviewed and assessed. One of the things companies and government organizations around the globe need to be doing right now is assume compromise. They need to do a proactive threat hunt. I liken it to, you know, if you start to suddenly see fingerprints on the outside of your house, on the windows and on the doors, it could be your kids uh, looking in or maybe uh, you know, it's holidays, maybe it's Santa peeping in but it could also be people with nefarious intent. That's the type of thing you do in a threat hunt. You look to see whether or not digitally you're being surveilled. I would also be looking at logs to see what kind of data has been leaving the organization and looking for anomalies, which is hard to do in a pandemic when we're in this hybrid work from home situation.
6: Hey, Teresa, um, this is a situation that I I think is also uh, concerning because it wasn't the government that caught that it was being hacked. This was private companies or publicly traded companies that picked up on this and, and alerted the government. And it just raises the question about a cyber security czar, whether that's something we need at this point. Uh, it, it's difficult for government to compete with private industry because it can't pay the same rates that private industry can for some of these jobs. What what do we need to be doing? You're somebody who's worked in the White House. What What needs to happen? And how can we try and make sure that we're protecting it as best as we can from the government's perspective.
4: Yeah, I mean, the government has done a great job in the last several years in actually working on compensation and incentives and has recruited some pretty incredible talent uh, to work in the government organizations. But I agree with you. I think one of the things that's missing is each vertical, you know, each department and agency ends up being its own entity. And you do really need a White House cybersecurity coordinator who has the authority and the responsibility to look across these equities and entities that bridge the gap between the Hill, the White House, private sector, and the departments and agencies. And uh, that role has been left unfilled uh, since it was basically eliminated uh, by Mr. Bolton. So uh, I would advise the incoming administration, this is a role that needs to be filled and possibly naming somebody sooner rather than later during transition.
6: Teresa, thanks for your time. It's good to talk to you this morning.
4: Thanks for having me on.
1: That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. And hey, maybe share this podcast with a friend.